This is a News Radio 1440 podcast. Good evening, everyone, and welcome into the Situation Room right here on Tactics, where speech isn't violence, tolerance isn't love, and disagreement isn't hate. Thank you so much for being with us on the program today, and we always appreciate any amount of time you were able to take out of your day to listen to us. I realize that your day may have more spare time right now because you're in quarantine, but either way, we appreciate it here at News Radio 1440. I do actually have to start out today with some really sad news that is in no way coronavirus related, so far as I'm aware. But a friend of the program has actually passed away. Uh, a, a buddy of mine, he's been on the show probably at least twice, if not three times. I'm, I'm trying to remember exactly how often that happened. He was on me, I, I know at least once, back when I was just on the air and didn't do a podcast. Uh, his name's Martin Wishnaski. He was an attorney, worked with the Foundation for Moral Law. He was somebody that was a legal consultant of mine. Somebody that I do consider a, uh, a really good guy and uh, who contributed to this program. And uh, one thing that was really interesting to me, and, and he really respected me and appreciated my opinion, is that he would come to me for advice on things, whether it was talking about how to word something, and typically, more often than not, the thing that he sought my advice for was he was also a cancer patient, and I had gone through that just recently before him. Unfortunately, I was able to emerge from my bout with cancer with my life. Sadly, he was not. And uh, I really hate it for him. I would ask everybody to pray for him and his family and the people surrounding him. I'm not really sure about much of his personal life. We kept things pretty much professional, but I, I do just genuinely hope that you would pray for that. And I know that he was a very religious person, somebody that went from being agnostic to a faithful follower of Jesus Christ. And so I, uh, you know... I just think about that and, and think about the example that he led for other people. And, and this guy is somebody that, that actually helped pin an amicus brief for one of the biggest chances that the Supreme Court has had to overturn Roe v. Wade in a long time. Now, that, co that court case has not gone to the Supreme Court yet. And uh, we don't really know what the result is going to be, but it's interesting to think about it this way that his legacy might actually wind up being something that he never actually got to see, which is something, especially in the scripture, that you see from a lot of really great men. I mean, you look at Moses, that he doesn't actually get to go into the promised land, that he just gets to see it from afar, and, and he dies right before the Israelites actually cross the Jordan there. And so maybe something similar will happen with him, and, and I know that he would be pleased regardless of what happened to him personally, if we could wipe this stain of abortion off of the uh, off of the face of this continent, I, I really hope that that would be the case. Um, I mean, us in Canada and Mexico too, but but primarily just getting rid of it here in the United States, and and maybe he'll get to play a small part in that. I, I hope that that winds up being true, but uh, just pray for that family. We are going to go ahead and jump into our coronavirus update. Let's go ahead and look at the latest from the Alabama Department of Public Health. Let's go ahead and get that pulled up. There we go. 
As you can see, there are currently 6,687 confirmed cases of the Wuhan coronavirus. There have been 75,827 that have been tested for that. There are currently 242 deaths. And, okay, I'm going to go ahead and show my hand here. I, 911 hospitalizations. Now, I get, and I typically am a pretty serious guy. I do like to laugh. I do like to be funny, but I'm typically just better at playing it straight. But even I have to admit that I, even though I kind of felt bad for laughing at this, when I was looking at the hospitalizations and saw that the hospitalization totals were 911, it gave me a little chuckle. Like, I, I know that there's nothing funny about people getting sick and having to go to the hospital, and I feel horrible about that, but, you know, it's just, it's a sense of whimsy, and I have this weird thing about wordplay, so, yeah, I chuckled at it a little bit, the fact that it just happened, the total today, to be 9-1-1. But that's where we are right now, and uh, I think that maybe looking at this crisis and, and looking at everything with a little bit of humor helps make it a little bit easier, helps us keep our sanity, despite not having a lot of human contact and all being quarantined off by ourselves like we are right now. That is a plus 188 new cases since yesterday, so not something that is at all insignificant. I want to go ahead and look at the cases and, and what the graph is looking like here. So you may notice that it looks pretty much the same as it did yesterday. There actually is a little bit of a dip in the increase, which could be an early signal of a plateau, but remember that on this program, I've said that before, other people have said the same thing about Alabama plateauing, and it has been proven to not be the case in the past. So it is quite possible that even though that graph would seem to indicate that we have plateaued, or at least coming into the early stages of it, that happened, what, about a week and a half ago where we saw a similar pattern and it turned out to be nothing. So, you know, take that with a grain of salt. Like everything else, we're just kind of patching together guesswork as quickly as we can here and uh, making some guesses. So be aware that that is a possibility, but not necessarily a guarantee. So just a, a good way to approach that particular statistic. Let's go ahead and look at the new coronavirus cases. And if you can see there, one thing that has been interesting over the past couple of days, and I predicted yesterday that the fact that we had so many new cases over the weekend could be something that is a, a really terrifying indication that during the week that that was going to shoot way up and that maybe yesterday being a lull was just indicative of previous Mondays where you have a little bit of that carryover from the weekend not having as much. That's really more of an indication from deaths, but the, the week and the weekend uh, do somewhat affect the number of new cases we have, because it also does affect the number of new tests that we have. This one right now, because we had two pretty high days consistently back-to-back -back just a couple days ago, and it seems to have normalized at least a little bit, we're actually slightly under our normal new cases. And actually, Dr. Scott Harris was talking about this, who works with the Alabama Department of Public Health, that typically... What happens is we hover with our new cases. It, it goes up, it goes down some days, but we wind up averaging out, at least over the past couple of weeks, at somewhere around the 200 mark. 
So the fact that we're at 188 new cases, that's actually a little bit below average. And considering this is the start of a week, that may be a pretty good sign. Again, just like the previous chart that we looked at, there's not a long enough running pattern. We haven't been consistent for a long enough period of time to show that that is the case. But maybe. And one of the things that was discussed in the press conference by Governor Ivey, which we're going to get to in much more detail just in a couple of minutes, one thing that was discussed very much at length are the parameters for starting the phase two open up. And the one parameter that the state of Alabama has yet to hit is a 14 day consistent decline in new cases. That has not been the case. And part of that is not necessarily because our case numbers and our new cases are way up. It's because we haven't seen a decline because there hasn't been any consistent pattern of any kind. Like you just saw on that graph, we'll have some days we'll have a lot and then some days we'll have barely any. So you can't really have a consistent decline if you don't have consistency to begin with. Granted, what we have being kind of erratic and unpredictable, much, much better than a predictable incline. That's certainly true. But it's still not something that you can really consider a conclusive decline. So that being said, let's go ahead and look at this next one, which looks at the new test. And this may also be an explanation of the reason that our new cases have been down a little bit, because you'll notice our new tests have been down quite a bit as well, because if you will look at the number of new cases and the number of new tests, I'll switch back to new cases here. Number of new cases, number of new tests, you see that at least for the past couple of days, and this hasn't always been the case, but at least for the past few days, our new cases in Alabama and our new tests in Alabama coincide not exactly perfectly, but pretty much the same as our new cases. And so it is quite possible that this is indicative of less people actually being sick in the state of Alabama. It is also quite possible that the fact that we have not been able to get testing material or haven't been able to open testing facilities over the past few days, and because of that have had a sharp decline in tests, that there are just as many people getting sick and we just haven't had the materials and the ability to test. Now, I, I can't corroborate whether or not that is true. There were some questions asked about it earlier in the same press conference that I'm going to reference here in a second. And uh, Dr. Harris actually mentioned there that other states have also had issues getting things like personal protective equipment and in this particular case, getting tests, the materials that are needed to conduct these tests for the Wuhan coronavirus. And so if that is the case, if we're having shortages on materials to be able to test, and over the past couple of days we haven't had many tests and also haven't had many cases, it is possible, not necessarily likely, but possible, that what is going on is we haven't been able to get the testing materials that we need. Because we haven't been able to get the testing materials that we need, there are a lot of people that would normally get tested that are not being tested right now. And what that, of course, leads to is that just as many people are getting sick, there is no decline. You just can't tell that because we've had a hiccup in testing supplies. And by the way, this is a problem that other states are currently dealing with. So it's not just us, not just Alabama. We're not getting the short end of the stick or anything like that. Based on what we can tell, what is going on here is that there have been some hiccups in the supply line, and, and it is 
plausible, again, I don't have this confirmed, so take it with a grain of salt. It seems as though there have been some hiccups with the supply line, which is keeping us from getting the necessary test materials, which is the reason that both our testing and our new cases are down. But another statistic, and this is going to be primarily a follow-up from yesterday, if you were watching yesterday, another important statistic is the new deaths in the state of Alabama. And these, of course, are deaths specifically related to COVID-19. Now, you'll look at yesterday and see that there was a pretty big spike compared to the day before. I mentioned yesterday that it was somewhat unsettling that over the weekend we had 11 deaths apiece when typically that doesn't happen over the weekend. It's not that it never happens, but it's very rare to actually see a death for this virus over the weekend, and so I predicted that, unfortunately, what may wind up happening is once the the weekend is over, since we had a much bigger weekend than we normally had, we could also see those numbers climb even further during the week, and we may be seeing numbers where we're getting daily new deaths of 30, 40, or 50 on a consistent basis. Now, granted, we only have today to judge by because usually there's a little bit of carryover from Monday as well. But here we are at Tuesday, and we're at 20 deaths, which should not be taken lightly. 20 deaths is still 20 deaths too many, and certainly not something that we want to be dismissive of. But considering my prediction that I made yesterday that we were going to wind up having somewhere in the 30s or 40s for new deaths and have those consistently throughout the week and the fact that that didn't happen and we had about half of that, that's really, really good news. It means that the spike in deaths over the weekend, at least compared to other weekends, was not indicative of a, a another spike that would happen during the week that would be significantly worse. So it appears as though, based on today and, and today's statistics alone, that we did somewhat dodge a bullet there. Again, just like everything else that we've talked about, this pattern could be completely interrupted tomorrow. We could find out that my earlier prediction was 100% right. This is one of those occasions where I'm thrilled to be wrong. It turns out that we did not have those level of deaths, but, you know, that's kind of where we are right now, that we're just having to, every single day, look at the data, see what's going on, see if we can detect any kind of patterns and make some predictions that would be you know, educated guesses for tomorrow. Right now, there's not been any consistency really on any of these statistics, at least not enough to be able to predict something happening in the future. The only thing that seems to be somewhat steady are new confirmed cases. And if you look at them just with the new cases day by day, even that's pretty inconsistent. So there we are. Uh, now, the... I. I know I'm getting a little tongue-tied here, but I want to say this as basically a word of preparation because this is something that is difficult to convey to listeners because not only is it bad news that you don't want to hear, it's also news that I frankly don't want to hear, and, and I hate to mention this, but of course one of the big things that they were debating back and forth the day, and rightfully so, is the same discussion that we're having all over the country, which is, Is it time to open this thing back up again? Are we ready? Do we feel like we're in a place where we can open it up and and sort of safely get back to business as usual, 
maybe continue to keep some of the precautions that we've put forward, continuing to do things like socially distance, wear a mask, but, but can we more or less get back to being able to go out and to work and to engage in at least maybe some small social events? And the thing that you have to keep in mind with this, because I want to always remind people of this before we go into it, you're going to see an increase in confirmed cases and in deaths if we do that. That's unavoidable. There is not a way, barring staying locked up in our houses until they develop some kind of vaccine for this thing, that that is not going to be a reality. When people get out, when people start moving around, when people start interacting with one another, even if it is a limited basis, you are necessarily going to see an increase in confirmed cases and in deaths. That is inevitable. And that is true of any communicable disease. That is true of the flu. That is true of any disease that has some sort of infectious aspect where it can be, uh, you know, moved person to person with the exception of of things that are like STDs or, or something that needs really close contact or contact with some kind of direct bodily fluid like Ebola, if you're talking about any kind of normal human infectious disease, that's always going to take place. Regardless, you're always going to see an increase in infection and death rates when you open the world back up for people to start interacting. That's not the question that we should be asking. The question we're, we should not be asking is, okay, well, can we move out and everybody start getting kind of somewhat back to normal life and still continue to see death rates go down and infection rates go down? We can't. That's an impossibility unless we develop a vaccine or a cure or something. That, that's just not, that's simply not going to happen. That's not realistic. What we have to do is look at this thing, look at the shutdown, like chemotherapy. And I question very much whether or not actual government orders to shut down are effective or not. I'm not talking about that for a moment. Because before we get into the press conference, I want to set the table here. What I'm talking about is shutting down voluntarily. Because people were shutting down voluntarily before governments ordered them to. Uh, and I believe and, and have made this case beforehand, and we're seeing this in other states and other countries, even once the shutdown or the stay-at-home orders are lifted, they are still not going out and just going about their normal lives as they usually would. That's not something that is happening. They are, even though they may not be ordered by the government, they are continuing to socially distance, to self-quarantine, do all of those things. Because even though there are some people that will disregard it and ignore it, the vast majority of the American people know that this thing is serious and are taking it seriously and are behaving accordingly. They don't have to have a government order to tell them to do that. They were doing that before the government orders came. They'll continue to do it for a little while until they start feeling safe after the government orders have expired. That's just the way that it works. And so because of that, I'm talking about these shutdowns, not in the legal sense. I'm talking about the shutdowns that, that we're sort of self-imposing and that we would have self-imposed regardless of what the government decided to do. When we start moving around and, and when people start uh, interacting with people again, yes, those numbers are going to go up, but that shutdown is like chemotherapy. You see, the organism is sick. And in this case, that's literal. 
And when you inject chemotherapy, what you're trying to do is, you know it's poisonous, you know it's bad for you, I know I've had it pumped through me for three months. It's awful. <laughs> There's no better way to describe it. It's, it's one of the worst experiences that you can go through, but that, that's how it is. And so when they, they pump you full of that stuff, the doctor, the oncologist may look at your situation and go, okay, we need to back off because as bad as dying from cancer is, the treatment, if we continue to go at it at the rate we've been going, is going to kill you. So we got to back off from it a little bit or he may stop you altogether and wait. When it came to my cancer, the very last day of cancer was the day after I wound up in the hospital for PE blood clots, and it just so happened that that particular kind of chemotherapy is one that is especially hard on the lungs. And so my doctor wisely looked at my situation and said, you know what, we're just going to forego that final cancer treatment or that final dose of chemotherapy. I'd already been through a round, but, but I had one dose left. He says, we're just going to forego that last dose. And when we got the numbers back later, it turns out that last dose didn't matter because my numbers had already gone down to the point to where my cancer had been pretty much depleted. And this is really what's going on here. That we're, as a society, looking at this and looking at the economic turmoil and the, the issues that have come up. And I, I hate these people making bad faith arguments that the, the false dichotomy of choosing between what we should do now is either death or money. That's not what's going on here. People are looking at the economy and the, the, the death and devastation that is being caused by it and saying, look, we, we want to stay healthy and we want to be as safe as humanly possible, but we also understand that if you just pump us full of chemotherapy, the cancer will die, sure, but so will the organism, and that doesn't do anybody any good. What's the point of stopping the cancer if the organism dies? That, that doesn't make any sense. And so that's really the debate. That's a proper way to frame the debate as it is going on right now. And unfortunately, it looks as though if, if we keep this up for too much longer, the organism is not going to survive, and the cure will actually be worse than the disease. So with all that in mind, I want to go ahead and look at Governor Ivey's safer at-home orders because there are several things that I need to, to go over and I think will be helpful in understanding what the differences, the contrast are between the safer at-home orders, which he issued today, and the stay-at-home orders, which have been uh, sort of Alabama's overriding guideline on this for the past month. So very little is actually going to change, and even less is going to change unofficially. Like I was just saying, the vast majority of people, both in this country and in the state of Alabama, were already self-quarantining before this stuff happened anyway. They already made a lot of those decisions. The people that ignored it, they were going to ignore it no matter what happened. The people that were going to follow it, those were likely people that were going to stay at home and try to abide by the guidelines, whether or not they were orders or not. And so the fact that they were implemented, I don't think makes a big difference. I made that case yesterday. You can go back and look at it. But regardless, very little on that front has changed. But even in the official capacity, even if you're looking at it purely at the legal perspective and not factoring in human free will and human behavior, there's really very little difference in this and what we've been under for the past several days. For example, one thing that is changed, one thing that is different, is that beaches 
are now going to be opened as long as you social distance, which, by the way, makes sense. We've just recently learned new information has come in, and because new information has come in, we have changed the way that we look at this, which is the way that science is supposed to work. Recent information has shown us that heat and humidity do play a very significant role in how contagious this thing is. It just can't survive for very long in the sunlight, especially when you're talking about high humidity. And so places like parks and beaches, those places should be relatively safe, certainly much safer, even more so than social distancing while you're inside. And so this is actually, I, I think, something that is really beneficial, something that is really good. Uh, it was a good call to say that beaches are open again, but to continue to advise them again, I, I don't think it should be in order. I'm not going to repeat that a thousand times, but uh, social distancing saying, yeah, just maintain some distance between your family and the family next to you on the beach and you'll be fine. Another one that changes is retailers are now able to open as long as they stay under 50% capacity. So whatever their maximum occupancy is, according to the fire code, they need to scale it back to about 50%. Here's the thing about that, though. I agree with this, and, and frankly, I don't think it goes far enough. However, have you ever seen the maxim maximum occupancy of most retail buildings? It's pretty big, and they really never come in danger of coming anywhere close to that in most circumstances. Maybe there are some exceptions to that, but if you're keeping somebody down to about 50% of what they normally have, the truth is that's not really going to change much. The only thing that I can think of that, that might be a difference is bars, but bars aren't even allowed to be open under this, so I don't see how that really makes a difference here. When you're talking about a retail business, very few of them ever even get to 50% capacity on a normal business day, and so I really don't see this making much of a difference. I'm glad that it's there, but at the same time, the rule doesn't really make a lot of sense. And then elective medical procedures are now opened up again, which I think is, again, a step in the right direction. It's a very good thing. We talked about UAB yesterday announcing that they have already factored it up and they are losing $70 million a month because of the coronavirus and all the upheaval that it has caused and not being able to do elective surgeries. They normally have uh, over 150 surgeries done a day at UAB. Now they're down to 60. And so opening this thing up to elective surgeries was a really good, really beneficial thing. That's a good rule change. However, there are several things that stay the same and it doesn't make a lot of sense why they're staying the same. First of all, close contact businesses are still closed and they cannot open under any circumstances. So literally, if you were a barber and you had one person come into your shop and you cut their hair, even if it was a close friend or something, you would still technically be in violation of the law as long as you were opened for business. And so there's a number of reasons why that's incredibly stupid. But uh, the thing that really bothers me about this is give businesses the ability to be creative and to make some of their own decisions. If you're a barber, just bring your chair and some of your materials to cut people's hair out into the shop, or sorry, out into the uh, parking lot. That's what I would do. Just cut people's hair outside. And heck, out there, you don't even have to sweep up everything. <laughs> I mean, it actually might be a little bit easier. You'll, you'll be a little hot and sweaty, but the point is you'll be able 
to make it happen and you'd be able to do that. If if you have a parking lot that's big enough or you have a space that you can use, just do that. That's going to greatly reduce your risk of spreading anything and, and you can just take extra precautions, you know, wear gloves, uh, wash your hands. The, the last haircut I got, which I didn't mind at all, I did it before all of this quarantining stuff started, but there was still some rumors going around. My uh, barber actually wore a mask, and I was fine with that. I, in fact, I appreciated it because I don't—I don't know. Maybe, maybe she wasn't able to, uh, or maybe she had it, and and that prevented it from being spread to me. I don't know, but uh, it seems unlikely considering we—I don't even think we had had a case in Alabama when that happened. But anyway, so that's what we're we're looking at right now. If you just give the freedom of choice to the people, they will come up with ways to sort of make themselves uh, able to do things like that safely. Another thing that, again, I don't think makes a ton of sense, in-person dining is still closed. That really doesn't make sense, again, for outdoor restaurants, especially considering the new information that we have, because if you go down to Gulf Shores, there are tons of restaurants they're just straight up open air. I mean, they, they don't even have a roof over them. They Some of them have a retractable roof, but, you know, they, they have dining areas that are just straight out in the sunlight. Uh, Niffers on the lake, which is not far from here in Dadeville, they have an entire outdoor dining area. It makes perfect sense for them to be allowed to open and to serve people, and, and I would even, um, I mean, I would probably avoid it just because I have risk factors, but if, if I were a healthy, able-bodied person, I would feel perfectly comfortable eating at a Niffers, especially if I was being served and everything took place outside. If you're a normal business that just doesn't have an outdoor dining area, you got a parking lot. If you're out there in the open air, especially with Alabama's heat and humidity, you should be okay. And maybe not open for the night shift, maybe just open for lunch, but it's still something. It's still something going into your coffers or, or just do carry out for dinner. I mean, there's a thousand different ways to make this work and still be safe. And the fact that the government is robbing people of that choice and saying straight up, no, you can't do it. Even if there are restaurants that are even specifically well suited to be able to operate safely is just unconscionable to me. And here's another thing that I want to ask you. Where do you think that you're in more danger? Do you think that you are in more danger in a restaurant? I'm not even talking about an outdoor restaurant. I'm talking about just a regular restaurant if it were operating regularly. Do you think that you are in more danger in a restaurant where you walk up to the hostess, the hostess seats you in a booth, and the, the restaurant takes special precaution to go ahead and sanitize the booth, you know, wipe it down, wipe down the tables, wipe down the booths, uh, and, and you are sectioned off in your booth away from everybody else that is dining in there in you, and as long as they sanitize it after every person. And then you sit there, and then the person, the waiter, brings you your food and then takes your check. Do you think you're safer in that situation, or do you think you're safer in a situation where you're going into a retail store? And the thing that burns me up about the retail stores is, there's been a lot of retail stores that were already open. I mean, I'm glad that they're taking steps to try to help those, those local retailers, but if you're talking about places like Lowe's and Home Depot and Walmart and Target and all of those big-name Brock stores, it seems like you're letting those guys operate, but you're screwing over the little guy and those small businesses and making them fall even further behind at a time where their competition is not only open, but they're like the only game in town, so they're getting a larger portion of the market share. 
It didn't make sense to close one and not the other. And it makes even less sense when you're talking about local restaurants because you're actually far less likely to come in person-to-person contact with somebody in the scenario that I just described in a restaurant than you are in a retail establishment where somebody could walk up right next to you, walk right past you in an aisle, something like that. And not to mention, if you're looking for something to pick off the shelf, you don't know who who has touched that beforehand. At least if you're getting food served to you by a waiter that is a professional that is charged by the business to make sure everything's clean and sanitary and they're not passing things along, well, that's very different than in a retail store where, for all you know, somebody's licking your Bluebell ice cream (laughs) right before you buy it off the shelf. And by the way, I do hate that that happened to Bluebell because they're a, a phenomenal company. But anyway, my point in all of that is These rules seem arbitrary, and they don't seem to match what we know about the virus. That's what bothers me about this. That it seems as though they're just sort of arbitrarily deciding, okay, you get to open your business. No, you don't. At least the person-to-person contact businesses, the barbers and the tattoo parlors and things like that, at least from that perspective, I do understand, okay, there is a difference in actually making physical, because you have to make physical contact with somebody to, to cut their hair. But to close down restaurants and not retailers, that that doesn't compute. You're actually a lot safer in one than you are the other, and it's not retailers. So again, just leave this open to the people. Let them make their own decisions. And the one that is really bothersome, the one that really gets under my skin, is that there has been no change whatsoever to the policy when it comes to churches. That's right. Governor Ivey, who campaigned on how much she loves Jesus and and how much she loves the Bible and, and believes in worship and goes to church and all those things, and, and Governor Ivey's not alone. That's like the first thing every single politician in the state of Alabama talks about in their first campaign ad. It's mandatory almost. I, I think there's actually an Alabama law in the Constitution somewhere in those 900 amendments where if you don't mention Jesus at least three times in a campaign ad, you can no longer be considered for public office. That, that's probably in there somewhere. And yet, despite all of this, all these politicians are basically completely MIA when it comes to the governor unilaterally shutting down every house of worship in the state of Alabama. Now, I know that there are some that are actually open and just flying under the radar. I, I understand that. But... When you're looking at that and, and looking at the way that politicians treat religion and how they constantly beat that Christian drum as hard as they can every time an election comes around, and then when the governor shuts down every church in the state, they're just like, eh. I mean, remember that the next time that you see one of those ads. Better yet, ask them about that when they're on the campaign trail. But anyway, that's where we are right now. And what really chaps my hide, and and the reason that this bothers me so much, is when you're saying to retailers, oh, as long as you maintain social distancing protocol and you keep it down to just 50% of your normal capacity, yeah, you can open up. Why not apply that rule to churches? Again, just to make it clear, because I've said it a thousand times on this program, I don't want to go back to the congregation until it's safe. If my elders were sitting here with me right now, and and some of them are probably watching, honestly, if the elders at my congregation were asking me right now, do I think it's safe to open up this Sunday for service, I would say probably not yet. It doesn't matter. 
they still should have the right to make that decision themselves. There are some elders that they may only have 16 people in their church. Some of these little country churches, that's all they've got. It may make perfect sense for them to open up their doors. That's their decision. And if you want to say to retail businesses, well, you can stay open as long as you're cutting it down to 50% and you're keeping everybody six feet apart. Why not apply that to churches? Why are you using a blanket statement to say, nope, no gatherings over 10. And by the way, churches, you're out. Now, if you want to gather more than 10 people or, you know, say 150 people in a Lowe's, yeah, that's cool. But definitely not churches. We've got to make sure that they stay closed. The message that you're sending there, and I've been saying this since the beginning, is that things like groceries and hardware, all good things that I don't have a problem with, those things are essential. Church, not essential. You don't have to worry about that one. That one's just non-essential. You don't have to worship. You're sending a very clear and very disturbing message to how much you really value worship. And you're also setting an incredibly dangerous legal precedent for the future because if a governor can just shut down churches all willy-nilly when they feel like it, I can't imagine what would happen if somebody decided that they were just going to shut down the church because they didn't like some of the things the church was saying about it. But now we've set that precedent where it would be a lot harder to make that if this becomes the new standard that we now bear. Thankfully, Attorney General William Barr has said that he's looking into uh, scaling a lot of those back. So to give you an understanding of how ridiculous this is, especially in the state of Alabama, here is a map that Pew Research Center has put together on the restrictions when it comes to churches during the coronavirus. So you'll see there, lots of different states, especially our neighbors, have an actual exemption. So what you're seeing there in the dark blue, those are states that have a religious exemption. In other words, they may advise churches not to open, but they leave that decision up to the churches because that's a freedom of religion issue. And Tennessee, Georgia, and Florida all have that. You will notice that Alabama and Mississippi have a limited to 10 or fewer people rule in place. So out of all these states, and, and there are, I believe, nine there that have it restricted completely. But Alabama and Mississippi have it restricted only to 10. And that means that out of all the uh, categories here... We are in the second most restrictive category out of all these states, and only nine states have a more restrictive measure on churches and how they operate in this particular climate than we do. That is unconscionable to me that that is going on right here in the Bible Belt. And the fact that we're limiting to 10 people, I want to give you, a, I want to give you an understanding of how effective this has been, because you'll remember we were looking at the coronavirus death rate yesterday, Look at our neighbors there. Tennessee, Georgia, and Florida all have an exemption from this to where churches can operate however they deem fit in this time. We will remember that Alabama has a lower death rate than Georgia, Florida, and Mississippi. Mississippi is more restrictive, the other two less restrictive. And the state that has a smaller death rate than Alabama is Tennessee, a state that has no restriction on it. So the idea that this is actually helping, this is actually making a difference, you'll also notice that some of the states that have uh, some of the states that have the most prohibitions, for example, New York, New Jersey, and also Washington, which 
um, leveled off, but, but originally had one of the worst ones, those are the ones that are the most prohibitive when it comes to churches and houses of worship. And so the idea that this just isn't, the idea that limiting churches and their ability to make decisions like this is doing really any good, I'm sorry, but that argument just doesn't hold water. There is no correlation or no, no seeable correlation between doing that and actually having fewer deaths and, and fewer incidents of the Wuhan coronavirus. I've got a comment here from my buddy Justin. He's saying, problem is many Christians consider church to be a non-essential or even harmful. Yeah, I, I got to be honest with you, Justin. That's something that has bothered me too. And unfortunately, what is being sent here, the message that is being sent reinforces that. That church is just something that you don't really have to do if you're a Christian. Well, I mean, the way that the Bible describes it, you are either in the church or you are not saved. That's it. There's only two categories of people. You are either in the body of Christ or you are not. And you know what happens to all those who are not? If you don't, read the Gospel of Matthew. Everybody that is not in that kingdom, not going to heaven. It is definitely an essential service. And you're absolutely right to point that out. The sad thing is there are a lot of Christians that don't consider it essential. And the government policies that we've seen grown out of this, they're really just a manifestation of that belief. It is really sad to see. I've even seen Christians argue that this is not something that we should, uh, we should be fighting for. And again, I'm not saying that we should open the churches back up. I don't even think that my own church should open back up. I'm saying that decision should be left to the churches, not the government. All right. On that, there was a fantastic article that came out earlier today on Conservative Review by Daniel Horowitz. And the headline is, Where is the authority of a governor to suspend all civil rights indefinitely? And he starts out, The Constitution, Bill of Rights, and various state declarations of rights do not change. They are fixed forever under all circumstances and are of nobody's private interpretation. So the legal philosophy that Horowitz is is sort of expounding here, that, that he is expounding upon and trying to explain is the idea of inalienable rights. These are the same kind of rights. It's the same word and and same verbiage and the same idea that underlies the Declaration of Independence. That if you have an alienable right, one that is given to you by nature's God and nature's law, then no person can take it away from you, whether they be a person of authority or a person in the government or not. They're not granted to you by other people. They're not granted to you by the government. They are granted to you by God, and that is between you and him, and that's it. And because of that belief, that is the foundation, that, that is the foundational core that the entire republic was founded upon. And Horowitz is right to point out that those are things that cannot just be suspended, even if you're talking about in a time of emergency. He, he continues on a little bit later. Through all the important questions about science, we are failing to ask the most salient public policy question. What authority does a governor or a county official have to suspend all personal liberty and property rights, even if healthy individuals and business owners indefinitely, without due process? The answer, of course, is absolutely no such authority exists. There is no greater right than the ability to move freely without restriction. We've never experienced a time in our 400 years on this continent even under King George, when the movement of an entire people of a state was restricted this, severe, uh, this severely for this long, especially 
without due process. While the people who form society give up certain powers in order to empower a government to protect public safety, this core freedom has never been ceded. John Locke explained the origin of this liberty as follows. To understand political power right and derive it from its original, we must consider what state all men are naturally in, and that is, a state of perfect freedom to order their actions, and to dispose of their possessions and persons as they think fit within the bounds of the laws of nature, without asking leave or depending upon the will of any other man. So, the basic principle that is being espoused by Locke that, that Horowitz points out is that one of the things that is a nature of a right is that you have it by right of birth. In other words, it's there when you are born, and it never goes away. Now, it's true that, for example, while you were a child and you're immature, your rights are, are basically under the supervision of a parental figure, and that's something that is uh, Locke talks about being espoused by God in his second trace of government, which, uh, by the way, everybody should read if you really want to understand the inspiration of our laws here in this country. But what John Locke is talking about specifically here is if that is a right that is given to you by nature, you also don't have to explain it to anybody. That's what makes it a right. You don't have to justify or gain permission from another person to get it. And he talks about specifically the ability to essentially go about their lives and go about their business and to be able to move around as being an instrumental part of that. Because your rights don't stop at your front door. You have the ability and, and should have the ability, the right, to go out into the public and to be able to move around and, and to interact and to do business with people. That's part of what we understand to be an inalienable, inborn, God-given right. You can apply this to other rights as too. Uh, the reason that we don't license journalists is because we have a right to freedom of speech and a right to a free press. The reason we don't license churches is because you have a right to practice your religion the way that you see fit. The reason that we don't license people to have guns, oh wait, I guess that does happen in some states, but they're wrong for doing it. The reason that you don't have to ask permission to have a gun is because that is an inalienable, God-given right. You don't have to explain to somebody why you need it. You don't have to explain to somebody why they need to allow you to take part in that behavior, it's something that is given to you by a higher authority than humans can grant. That's the point that Horowitz is making by quoting John Locke there. And he goes down further. This language from Maryland's Constitution comes almost directly from the Magna Carta and was expounded by William Blackstone in the 1600s. Personal liberty was defined by Blackstone as, quote, the power of locomotion, of changing situation, or removing one's person to whatsoever place one's own inclination may direct, without imprisonment or restraint, unless due by course of law. It was from this principle that our founders wrote the Declaration of Independence and the various state declarations in 1776. He's exactly right. Blackstone, who is one of the most quoted uh, sources of common law in the founding era, I mean, th this guy wrote the law book that basically every other attorney and every other founder based all of their ideas about what law should be and what common law is on, that guy was saying that one of the most foundational rights that we have is the ability to move around and to do essentially what we want to. Like I said at the beginning of this thing, I'm fine with self-quarantining. I've 
I can count on one hand the number of times I have left my house in the past 30 days to go do something. So I take this seriously, and I think the people should more or less stay in place. But that does not give the government the right to just suspend our rights until they see fit to reinstate them. That's not something the government has the power to do. And Horowitz is asking a very simple question, but it's one that also has an equally simple answer. When he's asking the question of where is this authority coming from, the answer is basically, well, we just made it up. Sure, we've never done it before, and there's no precedent for it, and the Constitution does not have specific exceptions, because you may also notice that the Constitution is not one that was written or intended to just have all kinds of exceptions that people could make up as they go along. The Constitution has exceptions specifically written into it in certain parts. For example, when it talks about the uh, certain rights that are uh, expounded, uh, sorry, talked about in the Constitution, it will specifically say, for example, in the Fifth Amendment, that you will not be denied property except by due course of law. What we just read from William Blackstone, that the only exception to being able to move about and, and to, to walk around freely, the only way that that right can be superseded by the government is if some kind of breach of law has happened and there is a correct legal process by which that right can be removed because you've proven that you are unable to do so responsibly. And there are even legal precedents for if somebody is a, a genuine public health concern and they are infected with some kind of contagious disease, that they may have to be imprisoned or you know quarantined would be the more common word here to be able to ensure public safety because that is a legitimate function of government. But there has never been a time in our history, no matter how bad a pandemic got, where they just whole cloth, uh, just with a giant blanket said, nope, we're, we're making sure everybody can't come out of their house. That's never happened in our history and shouldn't have. That's the point that he's making. You can't just blanketly say we're, we're going to quarantine everybody for the same reason that you can't blanketly say we're just going to spy on everybody. Wasn't that pretty much what the Patriot Act did? That originally they said, well, we've got to get this information. We've got to get these terrorists. So what we're going to do is we're just going to collect the data on everyone so that we have that resource available so that we can go back through it later and find what we're looking for. No, that's not how this works. If you want to find information on somebody, there's a legal process. You have to get a warrant. You have to name the thing that you're looking for. You have to put a specific name on the warrant. All of those things have to take place. The government basically just said, nah, we're not going to do that, and just said, we're going to do it for everybody, regardless of whether we think you're guilty or not. It's essentially exactly the same principle applied in a different way here with what we're seeing happen in real time with our liberties being taken from us. And that's the thing that makes this so incredibly scary. And just a, another example of this and how this kind of ties in with the surveillance state, Alabama's own Dr. Scott Harris, who helps run the Alabama Department of Public Health, he said today that they are looking into cell phone tracking for those that have been confirmed to have COVID-19. Now, granted, at least he's talking about people that do actually have it. And so at least there is some level of legal precedent for people that actually have it. But you're talking about tracking phones. That's what South Korea did. 
I remember back before we understood how big a deal this thing was going to be, that we were all laughing at South Korea and saying, no, no, that could never happen in America. And now the guy that is running the Alabama Department of Public Health said today in public at a press conference, that's what we're planning on doing. We're talking about doing that right now. That's a civil liberty nightmare. The fact that you're going to lowjack your citizens? I mean, what country are we living in if that's the case? And I really love how the, the explanation that Dr. Harris gave is, so we can get in touch with you. That's what he said. He said the reason that we need to do this is so for people that have this, uh, we need to be able to get information to you, so we, we need to track your phone to get in touch with you. Uh, dude, that's what a cell phone number is for. If you need to get in touch with me, I can give you my cell phone number. I don't mind taking a text from you. I don't mind getting emails. That's not the same thing as tracking. Don't pretend like the reason that you want to be able to track somebody's phone is so you can get in touch with them. That's a load of crap. And you know it's a load of crap. That's one of the lamest excuses I've ever heard. We are in real time seeing our liberties taken away from us. But ultimately, this does become a question of inalienable God-given rights versus government rights. That's what this all boils down to. Are your rights something that you have as a right by birth given to you by God as an individual, or are rights just something that the government occasionally conveys to you and then occasionally pulls back? Because I've always believed and always been taught from the Declaration of Independence that those are inalienable God-given rights, and no matter what happens, those don't go away. Unfortunately, there are people that do not believe that, and they are showing that they believe that really your rights come from the government, and because your rights do come from the government, they have the ability to take them away whenever they see fit. That's not what America was founded on. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back in just a minute on Tactics. This is a News Radio 1440 podcast. And for today's Daily Dose of Stupid, I tell you what, this crisis has really gotten the socialists to show their hand. That may be the only really good thing that has come out of this whole pandemic. And I do want to go ahead and show you, I think this really does show who they are and where their mindset is. So we'll go ahead and play this clip from Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Talk about this idea of reopening society. You know, only in America does the president, when the president tweets about liberation, does he mean go back to work? When we, you know, have right. this discussion about going, going back or reopening, I think a lot of people should just say no. We're not going back to that. We're not going back to working 70 hour weeks just so that we could put food on the table and not even feel any sort of semblance of security in our lives. All right. So the important thing to really understand about what's going on here is, first of all, before I even get into how wrong this is, you should also know that the whole thing is based on a false premise because AOC tries to peddle this narrative out over and over again. She, she tries to make people think that there are just hordes and hordes of workers that are being horribly exploited, that are working 70, 80 hours a week and still don't have enough money, like she said, to even put food on the table. First of all, that's a virtual impossibility. Just about anybody that is working 70 hours a week and still not making ends meet that's either a person that is living in a blue state that is taxed to death and, you know, 
half of their income is just going straight to the government or that's something somebody that is spending all their money on things they shouldn't, whether they're involved in some kind of drug addiction or something like that. It's virtually impossible to work that much and still be struggling financially. And the second half of that is it's just not that common, regardless of whether you're struggling financially or doing really well. Do you know what the average work week is for the average American? If you look at it, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, the average work week is only 34.4 hours. So it's really even looking at, at the, of course, the, the 40 hour limit, you're not even really getting all that close to that one. If you're looking at the average American and what their work week looks like. And by the way, I think this is really hilarious because when I was looking the stat up to research for this, I found it really interesting that, do you know when they break down the average work week by demographic, do you know what demographic actually is the only one that works more than 40 hours a week? Only one. Men. Men are the only ones that are working more than 40 hours a week. They, they work about 41 hours a week, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics. And so it's hilarious that AOC, that I'm sure would talk about how exploited women are and how terrible it is and how they're only making 70 cents on the dollar. The only demographic that was actually working on average more than the 40-hour federal legal limit was men. So don't come here and talk to me about male privilege and how they're making so much more money than women when we're actually working a significantly larger amount of our time than women are. And also that we're actually just working more. I don't see how that would factor into her male privilege worldview. And by the way, Another interesting factoid there, married men specifically, they tend to work about four hours a week more than their unmarried counterparts. And so the, uh, the average married man, which I'm sure she would just sort of dismiss as a symbol of the patriarchy and all of that stuff, the, the very demographic that she is normally attacking and talking about being so privileged Actually, it turns out that those are the ones that are working and being exploited more than the others, according to her own ridiculous liberal logic. And the second part of this is that AOC just does not understand, A, Americanism, but she also doesn't understand liberty. She's just like, uh, I just think it's like so ridiculous that uh, when the president is talking about liberty, he's talking about going back to work. Yeah, you idiot. That's what liberty means. The freedom to go out and make gain for yourself. That's what it means to be a self-made person. In America, that used to be something that was upheld as a virtue. Somebody that goes out and makes gain and provides for their family and works really hard and, and brings home money in return for that hard work. That's what freedom looks like. The American dream for the longest time was going out, having a good job, having a couple of kids, having a strong family, being able to go to whatever church you wanted to on Sunday and, and having a nice house, all of those things provided because you had a good job and you were good at it. Now what has happened is we have so skewed what that originally meant is that we're saying you should have all that stuff, but you shouldn't have to work for it. All the reward, none of the responsibility. And that's the difference in worldview here. 
You see, the difference in a conservative and a social justice warrior like AOC is that a conservative traditional American, they see work as something that is empowering and liberating. They see going to work as something to where they get to, to do something that, you know, more or less we love usually. Uh, of course, I've had jobs that I didn't like too, but even then I had the ability to go out and make money and to do what I wanted to with that money. And so it was still empowering, even if I didn't really like the job all that much. But the average person gets to work at a job that they more or less like, and they get to go out and make their own money and be independent. That's the idea that this entire country was founded on, that we are independent, that we don't depend on other people. AOC's version of liberty is the exact opposite of that. People that are dependent on the government. People that the government provides for without them actually doing anything to receive that dependency in return. And so the government basically just manages your life from a centralized location in Washington, D.C., and instead of being independent, you are dependent upon them. See, her idea of liberty is the exact opposite. Her idea of liberty is much more akin to the idea of liberty found in the USSR. Something that the government basically provides you with everything that you need and that you are essentially merely a tool, a small cog in the larger grand machine of government. That's the opposite of American liberty. The American idea of liberty is that you do it on your own. You provide for yourself and provide for others along the way and help them get to a point where they can provide for themselves and also in turn help others along the way. That's what Americanism is. That's what liberty is. And AOC just does not get that because in her mind, liberty is freedom from responsibility. What America has always understood freedom to be is freedom to be responsible, to have responsibility, and to go forth and do good with the things that you've gained as a result of your work. And the great thing about AOC and the reason that I have a lot of conservative friends that talk about they just want to get rid of her, they think that she should be out of office, I completely disagree with that. I love AOC. I'm so glad that she is a member of the House of Representatives, and we were going to get a liberal in that seat anyway. I hope she stays there for the entirety of her long political career. I, I would be fine with AOC from the time that she's 30 now to the time that she's 80 being a constant member of Congress to constantly remind us of how awful socialism is. I, I love AOC being in the House. And the reason that I say that is AOC constantly confirms every dumb liberal idea that conservatives have been making the case that they had for a long, long time. How many years have you heard Republicans and conservatives making the case that, no, these people really are socialists and what they want to do is create more voters that are dependent upon the government that don't go out, that don't work for themselves. They want to create an entire class of people that are wholly dependent upon the government. Thus, they will vote for Democrats. That's what AOC just said, that she would rather people actually be dependent upon the government than she would them go out and work. AOC confirms basically every conservative argument we've been making for the past 30 years. And that's why she is, I think, more instrumental to the good of this country and the good of the Republican Party than any Republican has been in my lifetime. And I, I'm including, I wasn't alive for Ronald Reagan, but definitely H.W. Bush and Newt Gingrich, all those guys. I think she's been better for the Republican Party than any of them. 
And by the way, she's not alone. Her uh, fellow squad mate, Rashida Tlaib, basically joined in with a very similar message the other day. Yeah, that's, that's not right. That's a statistic from the coronavirus. There we go. If you, if you are afraid to go to work, do not go to work. And I know this is hard, but you have, no, you have every right to make sure your life is put first and to fight back. I don't care if it's labor organizing this late in the game or if it's demanding that your life is not treated as if it's disposable, but I want you not to be afraid to go to work. You should not uh, at all ever feel like uh, I don't care if it's a president. I don't care who it is that tells you we need to, to, you to go back. We need you to start up back the economy and everything. Your life is much more important. And so I always tell my residents when they call, they're like, Rashida, you know, they're making us do this. They're making us do that. I said, do you feel safe? If you don't feel safe, you don't have to go to work. All right. So Rashida Tlaib basically saying the same thing as AOC. The motivation is a little different. The tone is a little different, but the overall message is exactly the same that really you just shouldn't go back to work. That when all this is, regardless of what your government says, regardless of what your employer says, when, when they say go back to work, you should just say, no, I'm not going to go back to work if I don't feel safe. So here's the thing. I do want to give benefit where, I, I do want to give the benefit of the doubt and, and actually talk about where actually Rashida Tlaib goes right in here because there are two kernels of truth that she actually just described. I know they may be hard to find, but I'm going to go through them. So the first kernel of truth is if you don't feel safe, you ought not go back to work. Actually, I believe that this is correct. I also believe that this is a case where freedom, just like we were talking about before the break, meets responsibility. If you don't want to go back to work because you don't feel safe, you have the liberty to do that. Nobody can force you to go into work. However, if your boss says, well, I'm sorry, we're going to have to go a different direction. That's the price of freedom. They have the freedom to do what they want to. You have the freedom to do what you want to. And with liberty comes responsibility and taking responsibility for any consequences that result from your choices. And by the way, this is probably a pretty bad time to put give your boss a reason not to hire you or not to keep you on, especially when you're considering that 30 million jobs have just been lost and there's all kinds of people looking for work. Like, they're going to jump at the opportunity to do that. And so because of that, uh, the spirit of what she's saying is definitely incorrect, but I do agree that one of the great things about liberty in this country is that if you do feel like you're unsafe, if you're somebody like me that has conditions to where I, I don't need to go in to do that, I might decide to go in because I, I feel that I have to, where I feel a sense of responsibility, but I also may decide to stay back because I feel that I'm at such a risk, and I don't think I'm quite at this level, but that I'm at such a risk that I would rather lose my job than I would actually have to go into work. And I understand that in my particular line of work, I'm, I'm very, very fortunate that I'm able to do not one, but two of my jobs from inside my apartment, more or less. I have to leave every once in a while, but by and large, I can do both of my jobs without ever leaving. But if I really did believe that I was in danger and that I would have to take some time off of work because I didn't feel safe returning, well, I have the freedom to do that. And if that means that I have to look for work elsewhere, that means I have to look for work elsewhere. So there is one kernel of truth there. The second one is that governors should not be able 
to just basically order people to go back to work. If there are companies that decide, well, yeah, but it's, it's kind of dangerous right now, well, that should be their call. I saw earlier today, and I understand why President Trump did this, I think he had the best of intentions, that President Trump was actually ordering meat processing facilities to stay open. Well, that's not President Trump's call. If the company believes as though it is in their best interest and their employees' best interest, and they believe that their employees would actually be in danger if they continued to do this process regardless of what they thought or, or what they said, well, then that would be something that ought to be their decision. They shouldn't have to open up at the president's behest just because the president tells them to. He's the president, not a dictator. Now, if President Trump wants to suggest that they remain open because they are something that is very important to our country, I'm on board with that. But there's a difference in suggesting it and ordering it. I believe that it stayed in the realm of suggestion as far as I saw today. But those are the two true things that Rashida Tlaib said. Unfortunately, there are also two gigantic lies that this was also based on. First is that you should be able to keep other people from going back. Look, if one person doesn't feel safe and they decide not to go back to work, that's okay. I think that that's, I've made it abundantly clear since we started this segment, I think that that's all right. What Rashida Tlaib was suggesting is that if you don't feel safe, you should also convince other people around you that they're not safe either and keep them from going back and organize some kind of labor strike. No, that's not what's going on. And by the way, that would be a really dumb thing to do right now. So coming together and, and doing that, that's just not a smart move, especially when there's so many people looking for work right now. This is one of the big differences, again, in the liberal mindset and the conservative mindset. The liberal mindset would say, okay, if I don't want to do something or I don't feel safe, I should make sure that nobody else does either. I should make sure that, that nobody has the ability to do it. It's the same thing with gun control, isn't it? A liberal that doesn't like guns, what they do is they try to make it to where nobody else can get a gun. When a conservative doesn't like guns, he just doesn't buy a gun. That's the end of that discussion. That's the end of that thought process with him. And the same thing would be true of this. If I feel unsafe going back to work, I just don't go back to work. It's as simple as that. I don't feel like I'm being exploited or anything. But when it comes to this, Rashida Tlaib wants to, if you don't feel safe, she thinks that nobody should go back to work. That's ridiculous. And another thing that, the second big lie that she gives here is that employers are exploiting and treating people as though they're disposable. She says, well, you shouldn't be treated like your life is disposable. Somebody that is suggesting that they need you at work is not treating you like you're disposable. In fact, they're doing the exact opposite. If they felt like you were disposable, they wouldn't ask you to come back to work. That's not how it works. They feel as though you are essential to accomplishing this job, which is the reason that they want you to come back, the reason that they are asking you to come back. Again, when you're talking about liberty, when you have the freedom to choose to say, okay, I'll come back or no, I won't, then you're not being exploited. Then it is a voluntary exchange of goods for services. Goods being the paycheck, services being whatever you do at your work. But the idea that employers are somehow evil and heartless, the reason that they may be getting back to work is so that that person does have a job. Because maybe that business just goes belly up if they don't get somebody back to work in the next few days and, and they're looking at the numbers and saying, man, if I, I don't put this together, my employees 
are not going to be able to do this. The thing is, they're probably okay. The business owner probably has enough financial reserve, not all of them, but most of them are probably going to be okay financially, even if the shutdown lasts a little longer. You know who's not going to be? The workers. Those people are the ones that those employers are probably looking at and saying, if, if I don't do something to save this business, they're not going to have a job. And then they really will be in trouble. And so the idea that Rashida Tlaib can just sort of, with a blanket statement, say that you should just not go back to work, that's a really dumb idea. It's short-sighted, and it also assumes some sort of malicious intent that employers are these evil, heartless, malicious people that just want to get people back to work so they can sit on their giant piles of gold in their basement because they want other people to die. That's just ridiculous. And by the way, it's not the only stupid thing she said in that clip. Let's go ahead and look at the second one. Look at Skylar. She's five years old. People kept saying kids can't get it. Let's not test kids. Uh, everything that they're saying are these assumptions that really put, I think, many communities, again, that are very marginalized, uh, their lives at stake. And so I just really urge uh, a lot of my a lot of my neighbors and other folks that have called me and reached out to me and said, I don't feel safe. I want you to organize with your other coworkers and demand better, demand that your life, again, is put first and that your health is put first. So I, I would push back no matter what these decisions and these other folks and these task force that are being put together, uh, your gut feeling, follow that. Uh, it probably is much more um, uh, credible than what you might see coming out of various administrations. Yeah, science a little shaky on that one. First of all, I don't remember at any point, and I've been following this thing pretty closely. It's my job. I don't remember at any point anybody from the Trump administration or Republican governor. Now, now maybe I missed it somehow. That happens. I'm a human being, too. And, and feel free to correct me, Rashida Tlaib, or anybody in the comment section if I'm getting this wrong. I don't remember anybody on the Republican side or a doctor or anybody throughout this entire thing saying, oh, kids can't get it. Don't test kids. Maybe at some point China said that. I don't know. But definitely not something that the Trump administration or any of the Republican governors, none of them, whether I think they've handled it well or not, ever said that. So not only is Rashida Tlaib dumb, she's also a liar. And she knows that she's just making that junk up. She knows that there's no truth to it. But Republican, or sorry, Democrats have this this preconceived notion that everything that President Trump does is wrong and that conservatives are anti-science, and because of that, I, I guess they just wouldn't put it past and find it believable that they would say something like this, as ridiculous as it may be. But she really does have the default position that everything that President Trump says is wrong. That's why you see at the end there that she says, trust your gut way more than you would trust uh, anything coming out of this administration, which, boy, that's a scientific approach to this problem, isn't it? I mean, granted, science can't solve everything. But uh, when we're dealing with a pandemic, I would a lot more want to rely on doctors and rely on biology and the medical science behind this than I would just trust my gut. I'm not a doctor, and my doctor's gut is also not a doctor. I, I want him to be using his brain, not just his feelings or, or how he feels about a situation. Going with your gut, as opposed to listening to Dr. Fauci or Dr. Burks or even your doctor, not really sound medical advice there, Rashida Tlaib. I love how they're constantly saying we're the ones that are anti-science when Rashida Tlaib has comments like that. 
But nonetheless, that's where we are. It's just one more form of feelings over facts. She wants you to make decisions based on your feeling. You don't feel safe. So regardless of what the science says, regardless of what uh, is being said uh, about how contagious this thing is or how likely you are to get it, or if you do get it, how likely you are to die from it, ignore all that stuff. Just go with your gut. I mean, why listen to the scientists when you've got your gut to guide you? It's absurd on a number of levels. But ultimately what this all boils down to, this entire situation is a socialist dream. It is a socialist dream where nobody is working and everybody is dependent upon the government for everything that they get. I mean, food, health care, everything. This is a dream come true for the socialist. And what's hilarious about this is, even though it's unsustainable and we wouldn't be able to stay the way that we are now for very long under socialism, ultimately this is the way that they want it to be all the time. That should be pretty telling that what a socialist envisions as a utopia is the world that we're currently living in where we're all griping about being dependent on the government and not being able to work. But that really is ultimately what they want. An entire people that people are just cogs in a machine under the watchful eye of Washington, D.C., as opposed to individuals going out and making gain and building something on their own. That's what Rashida Tlaib and AOC would rather America be. And they just told it to you in their own words. Let's go to the chaplain's report. In 1775, the Continental Congress created the Chaplain Corps. Under the command of General George Washington, each soldier was required to attend worship service every Sunday. While other armies advanced on their feet, Washington's troops advanced on their knees. It's time for the Chaplain's Report with Caleb Colquitt on Tactics. Chaplain's report today comes from the book of 1 Samuel we're continuing, and you may recall from yesterday that the last passage of Scripture we read was Israel demanding to have a king from Samuel. So Samuel, of course, being the great prophet, he's, he's sort of the lead prophet in Israel at this point, and they come to him and ask him to give them a king, and then a little episode ensues where God essentially tells them all the reasons why a king is a bad idea. And by the way, I do think it is not insignificant that those reasons last for an entire chapter, and this was not something that Samuel was just spitballing. These were commands coming directly from God, and God specifically tells him in verse 9, you need to explain to the people why having a king is not a good idea. Now, we went over a lot of that yesterday, so if you're interested in the backstory of that and, and the reasons that there should not be a human king other other humans, I encourage you to go back and watch the past two chaplains reports. But as for our reading today, we're going to go ahead and dive into 1 Samuel chapter 8, verses 19 and 22. This is after Samuel has given, basically spent the entire chapter explaining why having a king is a very bad idea and Israel will come to regret it. And we see the results of that in verses 19 through 22. Now, after Samuel had heard the words of the people, he repented them. He repented them in the Lord's hearing. The Lord said to Samuel, "Listen to their voice and appoint them a king." So Samuel said to the men of Israel, "Go every man to his city." Nevertheless, the people refused to listen to the voice of Samuel, and they said, "No, but there shall be a king over us." 
that we also may be like all the nations, that our king may judge us and may go out before us and fight our battles. The two big takeaways I want you to take from this passage. The first is, God warned them, and they still said no. God specifically told Samuel, you need to lay out a very solid, reasonable case for why having a king is a terrible idea. And Samuel did exactly that. He was obedient to the voice of the Lord. And he came out and said, oh, having a king is going to be awful. He's going to conscript your, your sons to be soldiers. He's going to take your grain and taxes. He's going to have all kinds of false judgments. And we already talked about one of the big reasons that their rationale didn't even make sense. The, the whole reason that they gave for wanting a king is because Samuel's sons were exploiting them. Essentially, their complaint was, there are people that are abusing their power over us, and their solution to this problem was, so let's get one guy that has ultimate power over us. Well, that doesn't make any sense, but that's what they came up with. I mean, mob mentality, it's a heck of a drug. But in this particular episode between Samuel and the people, he gives them all these reasons when it comes to their liberties being exploited and, and how the king system is going to be bad for them and how they'll come to regret it and how he's going to cause them to sin and their sins are going to be far worse than anything that happened with the judges in Israel. And at the end of the day, they say, nope, still want a king anyway. I find that absolutely fascinating. And the reason that I do is because I think it shows something about God's nature. And we've touched on this in some previous passages before. God is going to let them have what they want. You ever heard that expression, be careful what you wish for? Sometimes, not often, and he always made sure that it wasn't something too dangerous. But occasionally, my parents would see that I was engaging in something that was stupid or going to hurt me or was going to be a bad idea, and I would beg them to do it, and they would be like, all right. That's what's happening right here with God. The people have been pestering him. We get the indication from the scripture for a while to have a king. And every time God's been like, nope, that, that's not my way. That's not the system I put you. That's not the one that I gave you for. I've set you apart from other people. I don't want you to be like other nations. And they kept pestering and kept pestering and kept pestering and came to Samuel over and over again. And finally God says, okay, you are bound and determined to have a king. I'm going to give you a king and you're going to come to regret it. And he does, and absolutely everything Samuel predicts winds up happening later in the scripture. Every single thing. God told them, God warned them, he told them over and over again. And isn't that the way that we are in our own lives? When the Bible tells us that lusting after women that are not our spouse, or men that are not our spouse, you know, if you happen to be a lady, when it tells us that that doesn't lead anywhere good, we go ahead and do it anyway. At some point, God says, all right, you're convinced. That's what you want to do. Go ahead. He knows it's going to hurt. Hopefully that teaches us a lesson. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. When it comes to really any other kind of sin, whether it's, it's drugs, whether it's uh, just being an awful person, uh, whether it's not loving our neighbor, regardless of what it is, at a certain point, if we continue to rebel against God or rebel against his will and refuse to do it, God's going to say, okay, go ahead, do it. And then we're going to get hit for it. 
It's the same thing with, for example, an electric fence. When we touch an electric fence, that electric fence isn't punishing us for touching it. And it's not the power company, you know, forcing electricity through it specifically to hurt us. It's just we ignored the nature of the thing. The nature of the thing is, if you touch it, it shocks you. And that's what's going on here. God is not going to actively necessarily punish the people for making this decision. He's going to let them fall prey to their own decisions. It's actually kind of ironic that we've just been talking about liberty versus responsibility because this is a pretty good indication of what's going on here. The children of Israel were bound and determined to get their way on this, and God finally relented and said, okay, you you can have your way, but you're going to have to deal with the consequences of that decision later. And they said, you know what, fine, we'll, we'll do that. And of course, they did eventually wind up coming to regret that decision. The second part of this that I really want you to zero in on is their reason for why they wanted a king. Did they want a king because really what had happened is Samuel's sons were not living the way that they should and exploiting them? Not according to this. See, what happens is that was their original excuse. That's the reason that they told Samuel that they needed a king. But the truth is, it isn't the real reason. And they kind of show their hand here. And by the way, like I said in one of my previous chaplain's report, that was a totally legitimate gripe. There really were people like, unfortunately, Samuel's sons that were abusing their power as judges and exploiting the people. However, what's going on here is the people are saying what their real motive is, where they say, Uh, that they want a king because every other nation around them has a king. We want a king to go out and face our, uh, to fight our battles for us. We want a king to judge us and, and make, do this for us so we can be like other nations. It's one of the dumbest human excuses for doing anything that has ever been invented. And yet we continue to do it. By the way, this is not something that is wildly out of touch with human nature. This is something that has been shown to happen over and over and over again in the scripture. Why did Adam partake of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil? Because Eve took it and gave it to him and asked him to. It's really kind of the same mentality, isn't it? Part of the motivation for doing that is because Adam wanted to be like his wife, because now she had taken of the fruit, she had knowledge and and all of these extra things that he didn't understand. I think at least part of that motivation may have been because he wanted to join his wife and be like her, and the reason that Eve partook of the fruit in the first place is because this devil tempted her with being like God. This is one of the reasons that the Bible is always very cautious about comparing ourselves to other people. Because Israel started looking around and said, we want to be like every other nation. We want to be like them. We want to have the king. We want all the pageantry. We want to be able to have as like, hey, this guy, he's the one that's going to lead us into battle. We want to be able to say that. Well, they weren't actually looking at how it was going to improve their life, how it was going to make them better, how it was going to bring them closer with God. They were doing this for all the wrong reasons. They were doing it for the same reason that a kid tries his first beer because all of his buddies are doing it. The same reason that all kinds of people get into all kinds of trouble, especially when they're younger, because they went with the crowd. And that's what Israel wanted to do. And eventually they were going to pay dearly for it. You see, the truth is, if they, their real reason had been the reason that they gave earlier, you can kind of understand why Israel would be in the situation that they were and, and why they were so distraught about it. But here, they show their hand and give the real reason that they want a king because they just want to be like everybody else.
What was Israel's big sin? The one that came back and constantly bit them in the butt? Idolatry. Why? They were trying to be like everybody else. They wanted to have idols and all these different gods and these immaculate temples and, and all of these other things, and they wanted to be like the other nations around them, engage in the practices like they did, whether it was child sacrifice or you know all kinds of other evil, wicked things. They wanted to be like the people around them, and that got them into trouble more than anything else. And Samuel understands that, and they're about to go ahead and do it anyway, and eventually... God turns them over to that and says, all right, if you want to be turned over to this depraved mind, if, you want to do, if you're bound and determined to do what you want to do, have at it. And eventually they do. And for the rest of their history, the kings, with a handful of very rare exceptions, like David, Solomon, Josiah, only a handful of good kings, and the vast majority of them were awful and caused all kinds of problems for him. Which I think the lesson for us would be, when we're looking at the wisdom of men, and pitting that up against the wisdom of God, if we're looking at, okay, this is what everybody else does, this is what God says is right, probably would be a good idea to side with God. I mean, yes, collective human wisdom can be a good thing, and it can be something that is very beneficial, but on most matters, especially ones where God actually has something to say about it, let's go with God. He seems to be a little bit smarter than all of the combined people on this earth. Let's do what he wants us to do. Stay the course, friends. Tactics with Caleb Colquitt. Only on News Radio 1440 and NewsRadio1440.com.